Academy Life Pres. And uh, today we're actually uh, coming to the close and a conclusion in a sermon series uh, studying the book of James together. And our passage this morning comes from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. And we'll be focusing mainly on verses 13 through 18. And just a fair warning, it's a bit of a difficult passage, but I pray that we'll be blessed and encouraged as we study God's word here together this morning. And so for those of you who are able, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up with me to James chapter 5. And if I could kindly ask everyone to please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of reverence and respect and worship towards him. And I'll read this for us. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, this past week, I watched a YouTube video that some of you actually may remember seeing on the news uh, several years back. But back in 2013, the Canadian airline WestJet, they held this advertising campaign during Christmas where essentially before passengers would scan their boarding pass, they would have to navigate this huge touchscreen with this virtual Santa Claus that popped up asking them what they wanted for Christmas that year. Now, the catch or the surprise of this advertising campaign was that as passengers then went to board their flights, WestJet employees then went out to local shopping malls to actually buy the specific things that everyone typed in on this touchscreen. And what happened was in this video, as passengers arrived finally at their destinations, as they were waiting at baggage claim, along with their luggage, every single gift that they had asked for also came down the baggage claim conveyor belt with their names written on it. Everything from a new pair of socks and underwear to a brand new snowboard. Some people got giant TVs or a new iPad or a new phone. And it was a really heartwarming video just to watch and see everyone's pure shock and surprise and genuine reaction and just being so joyful and receiving these gifts that they had asked for. But as I was watching this video, as you, know, you do when you're watching YouTube videos, you scroll down and you check out the comments. And the top-rated comment on this YouTube video said this, Well done, WestJet. Although, I feel kind of bad for the guy who only asked for socks and for underwear. <laughs> because, friends, the point is that once he realized what was going on, as he looked around and saw these people with giant 4K TVs or a new iPhone or a new iPad and looked at his own hands, he probably thought to himself, man, if only I had just asked. Now, brothers and sisters, as we come to this final passage in the books of James here today, James does not want us as believers to make that same mistake. But instead, friends, James wants to teach us here this morning how to ask. He wants to teach us how to pray as believers. Now, friends, as we learned through the past several weeks throughout this summer, James has talked throughout this letter about faith, what it means to have true faith, how true and living faith in your life is supposed to impact every single aspect, every single area of your life, from your relationships to the way that you talk to the way that you just look at life. And friends, the final topic that James addresses here in this letter is one that I think, if we're honest, we could admit that all of us struggle with. That's prayer. Turning to God in prayer. 
turning to the Lord. Now, friends, the question that James answers for us here today in this passage is what does it mean to pray with faith? What does it look like in your life to have a prayer life that is saturated and that is guided by faith? What does it mean to have faith-filled prayers? And see, the, the four things that James will teach us in this passage, they all contain C, so hopefully it'll be easy to follow along, but there are four things that James teaches us here today about how to pray. First, he teaches us to pray in all circumstances. Secondly, James will teach us to pray with confidence. Thirdly, to pray with confession. And the fourth thing that James teaches us is to pray with Christ. And so again, the four things that we'll look at today together in this passage is first, to pray in all circumstances. Secondly, James teaches us to pray with confidence. Thirdly, to pray with confession. And then fourth, to pray with Christ. So let's begin with the first point. If you still have your Bibles, if you read verses 13 and 14 again with me, James writes this in verses 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Now, friends, the first thing that James teaches us here in this passage, it's a really simple, but it's such a profound and important truth. That, friends, there is no situation or circumstance in life where prayer to God or turning to God is not the right answer or it's irrelevant. In other words, friends, throughout the whole spectrum of emotions that you and I may face in our lives as human beings, whether it's in our highs or our lows, our greatest joys, but also our points of deepest sorrow and maybe even depression, what James tells us here this morning is that the right response is always going to be prayer. It's always going to be to turn to the Lord in prayer. You know, I love what the commentator Alec Motier says in verse 13 about verse 13 about what it means to pray in all circumstances. And he says this, what James is saying is that for Christians... Our whole life should be so angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into his presence. Now, brothers and sisters, that is what it means. That is what it looks like to have a faith-filled prayer life, to have your life so focused and fixated upon God that whatever comes your way in life, in any circumstance, both good or in bad, that your first, your instinctive and natural response is to bring it and take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, friends, if we're honest here this morning, I think all of us can admit that that is often not what our lives and what our prayer lives look like. I don't know about you, but that's definitely not what my life looks like. Because, friends, for all of us, there are so many times in life when, if you're just honest, you admit there's a lot of circumstances in life where it's just hard to pray, isn't it? But, friends, the question I want to ask you here this morning is, when in your life, in what circumstances in your life, what situation do you find it hardest to pray? You know, for some of you, maybe it's when things are tough. You're going through a hardship, a difficulty in life, a period of loss, and you just feel too weak or you feel too lacking in faith to turn to God and pray. Now, for others of you, maybe it's when life is so busy, your schedule's so filled with things, and your life is just so hectic that you just feel as if you can never make, you can never find the time to pray in your life. And yet, for some of us, maybe it's time, the times that it's hardest to pray is actually when things are growing really well in your life. So well, in fact, that you never really feel the need to pray ever or at all. But friends, in all those circumstances, the underlying question is, why is it so hard to pray? Why do we in our lives find it so difficult to pray in any and all circumstances as James teaches us in this passage? Now friends, is it really because we're just too busy? Is it really because we just forgot to pray? No. Friends, what the Bible teaches us is that the reason it's so difficult for you and I to pray in all circumstances, as James teaches us, is because friends, at the end of the day, prayer is a matter of the heart. Prayer is a posture towards God that first starts and begins in your heart, deep in your heart. Now, Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, 
he shared this story where as he was battling with cancer, his wife, Kathy Keller, she came up with this illustration that she used to encourage the two of them to pray every single night together for their health, for his health. And in this illustration, she said, imagine that you were diagnosed with such a lethal, lethal condition that your doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a medication every night. You took this pill every night. And imagine you were told if you missed it even once that you would die. Now, if that was the case, would you not get around to it some nights? Would you just kind of forget to take that pill in the morning or at night? No. It would be so crucial to your life that you would never forget, you would never miss it, not even once. And that is what she says, in some ways, needs to be the posture of our hearts when it comes to prayer and when it comes to God. But friends, if we do not turn to God, that we're not going to make it in our lives. See, friends, if in our hearts we do not value God, or we do not see or recognize or realize our deep and desperate need and dependence to turn to him in any circumstance in life, then, friends, of course we're not going to pray. And see, what James is doing in the opening verses of this passage, in verses 13 and 14, is he is addressing that exact issue within our hearts, the tendency of our hearts to neglect God, to turn from him no matter what is happening in our lives. See, friends, if prayer really is a matter of the heart, then, friends, in times of difficulty or suffering or trouble, See, the reason it feels so difficult to pray is because deep down, you feel distant from God. Or you feel as if he's distanced himself from you. And therefore, because of that in your heart, God is probably one of the last people that you want to turn to or talk to. But see, friends, on the flip side, on the other hand, when you're going through a period of life where you're just on cruise control, everything's going right, it's a period of blessing and just prosperity and comfort, friends, why does it feel just as hard to turn to the Lord instinctively in prayer in those moments? Well, friends, it's not because we just forget to pray. It's because, friends, in our hearts, we forget God. That is one of the first things, friends, that happens. When life is so comfortable and convenient for us as human beings, one of the first things that you and I do as human beings is we forget our desperate need for God in times of blessing and prosperity. And so, friends, what James is saying in this passage is that even in the extremes of life, in our times of greatest joy, happiness, comfort, and convenience, but also in our deepest sorrows and depression, James says that the right response is always going to be to take it to the Lord in prayer, whatever situation you're going through. And that's the first thing that James teaches us about prayer in this passage. Now, secondly, the second thing that James teaches us here today is to pray with confidence or pray with faith. Now, if you look with me at verses 14 and 15, James says in verses 14 and 15 this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, friends, what James does in these verses, he talks about a very specific scenario in the church where someone is too ill or is too sick to even get out of bed or get out of their house. And so what happens is the elders of the church need to be called upon to visit this person and to pray for them. Now, friends, most commentators will note that these are probably the most controversial and confusing passages or, or verses in the book of James. But friends, let me just clarify two things really quickly here. First, what is this whole deal about anointing with oil? Well, see, friends, back in the Old Testament, oil was often used as a symbol or a sign of God's presence, that he was with someone. But see, later on in the New Testament in the first century, oil was also commonly used as a medicine for different types of ailments, different types of diseases. Oil was essentially used as a medicine later on. And so, friends, the reason that James instructs those who are sick to not only have the elders come visit them and pray for their healing, but also have them apply this medicine and this oil, friends, the reason that James does this is because 
James is simply reminding us, friends, of the truth that you and I already know, that God can choose to answer prayer in any way that he wants to. Friends, in other words, James is saying that a prayer of faith, of genuine heartfelt faith, does not mean that you need to bypass means or medicine or medical technology, but friends, a prayer of faith means that you have confidence that God can heal not only supernaturally without those things, but you also believe that and have confidence that he can heal naturally through those things, through things like medicine, doctors, people, and common grace. And that's why James tells those who are sick to apply oil. Now, friends, secondly, and more controversially, more, more confusingly, James says in the beginning of verse 15, and the prayer of faith, a faithful prayer, will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, friends, just to be clear here, if you just take this, this verse at, well, out of context and at face value, it seems as if James is saying that Anytime you pray with true and genuine faith, that it's really heartfelt that you have conviction when you pray, it seems like James is saying that God is always going to heal, or that he's always going to answer your prayer. But friends, we know from the rest of the Bible, the rest of the scripture, that that's not true. Now, for example, in 2 Corinthians verse 12, a passage that many of us may be, may be familiar with, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul pleaded three times to the Lord to take away this thorn from his side, which most scholars agree was some sort of physical illness in his life. And friends, we know that even for the Apostle Paul, who had more and greater faith probably than any of us here in this room, that even Paul, when he prayed with faith, he was not healed. The Lord did not take away this illness, this thorn from his side. And so friends, if that's the case, even if we pray with the deepest sincerity, the most heartfelt genuineness and faith and conviction in our prayers, and it means that God may still not answer our prayers in the way that we ask, then friends, what confidence should you and I have when we actually pray? What is our confidence in prayer? Well, see, friends, when it comes to prayer, I think most people, they kind of oscillate or they tend to go to two extremes when it comes to prayer in their attitudes or their approach. Now, on the one hand, you have people who, they're overconfident in prayer. In other words, they overemphasize faith, they overpromise the results of prayer. Now, this is often the attitude that faith healers or people on television asking for money will often say things like, if you just have enough faith, God will give you whatever you ask for, but you need to believe enough. You need to have enough faith. And see, in this mindset or this approach, faith is the thing that produces results in prayer. And so when your prayer is answered, it means you had enough faith. But see, on the flip side, when your prayer is not answered, even worse, what it means is that it's because you didn't believe hard enough. You didn't have enough faith. You doubted that God would answer your prayer, and that's why your prayer was not answered. That's why you weren't healed, or your family member is still sick, or they weren't healed. Friends, it's one of the most destructive and toxic things that you could ever say to another believer. But see, on the flip side, there are other people, on, on the other hand, who have a different approach. Their attitude toward prayer is the opposite. See, for these people, they may pray. They may pray a lot. They may pray regularly. But see, deep down in their heart of hearts, they have no confidence that prayer is going to do anything. They don't really believe that by praying, God is actually going to respond in action or in change in their life. And so what they do is they pray. But the only reason that they pray is because it's a habit. The only reason they pray is because it's this practice that's been ingrained, indoctrinated into their lifestyle, their virtues, and their values. But at the end of the day, deep down in their hearts, they do not believe that it's going to do anything or accomplish anything. And friends, what James is saying in this passage is that neither of these approaches to prayer exemplify true Christian prayer. See, friends, true Christian prayer, prayer believes 
wholeheartedly in the power of prayer, that God can change things, that God could do anything through prayer. But friends, true Christian prayer also believes that the power of prayer does not come from the faith of the one praying. Friends, instead, true Christian prayer believes that who you pray to is far more important than how much faith you pray with. Friends, who you are praying to is infinitely more important than how much conviction or genuineness or faith that you are praying with. Friends, in other words, what James is teaching us to do in these verses is to pray with confidence. But see, not confidence in our own faith, not confidence in the intensity or the passion of our prayers or our conviction that God is going to answer our prayer in the exact way we want him to. But friends, with confidence knowing that the answers to our prayers are not dependent upon us. They are dependent upon the one that we are praying to. That's what James teaches us in this passage, to pray with confidence. Now thirdly, the third thing that James teaches us here today is to pray with confession. Now if you read verses 15 and 16 again with me, James writes this, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, friends, these are another set of kind of difficult, sort of confusing verses here because essentially what's happening is what James does in these verses is he's connecting and associating a person's sin with their sickness or he's connecting a person's illness with some sort of sin in their life. And friends, just to be very clear The Bible does not teach that every time you experience illness or health complications in your life, that it's because of some sort of specific sin that you committed in the past and that God is somehow punishing you for committing that sin. That's not what the Bible teaches. And friends, we know from, for example, from the book of Job, we know from Jesus' answer to the disciples in the Gospel of John chapter 9, when the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned so that this man was born blind? And Jesus said, no one. No sin caused this man to be born blind. We know from passages like that, that friends, the Bible does not teach that every time you get sick that it's a result of some sort of sin in your life. But now friends, if that's the case, what is the point that James is making here when he's connecting and associating sin with someone's sickness? Well friends, James is saying that although sickness is on the one hand, it's just, it's a consequence of living in a broken and a fallen world. Friends, James's point is that sickness is also something that God can use to bring about repentance in your life, to allow you to see your sin. See, friends, you know, a lot of the times, until you and I have health complications, until you, got, until you and I get sick, we often live our lives just on cruise control, don't we? We're healthy, everything's going great, and we live our lives living as if we think we're invincible or autonomous. But friends, the moment that you and I get sick, whether it's just a flu, whether it may be COVID or something even worse in our lives, when our bodies are weak and frail, friends, doesn't it remind us of reality? Doesn't it remind us of so many things? It reminds us of our finitude, that one day you and I are going to die, that our lives will not go on forever here on this earth. Friends, it reminds us of our weakness, our frailty, and it reminds us of our deep dependence upon God for every single breath that you and I take. And friends, when we have this new mindset, this sober-minded mindset in seeing our lives when we're sick, James is saying that those are often the times that you engage in the most self-reflection the most self-examination, and your heart is postured to see your sin and repent to the Lord. That's what James is saying. Now, friends, again, this does not mean that every time that you get sick, it's because you sinned, and you have to figure out which sin it was and repent of that, otherwise you're never going to recover. That's not what James is saying. But, friends, what James is saying is that every time you do get sick, 
your physical sickness, your physical illness, it may be something that God is using to remind you of your even deeper spiritual sickness and illness in your heart and your need to be healed spiritually, your need for repentance. And friends, at the end of the day, I know this passage is a little confusing, but at the end of the day, the Bible never promises that every time you pray for physical healing, that it's going to happen. But friends, what the Bible does promise is that every time you pray with confession, you see your sin, and you repent of that sin to the Lord in earnest faith, the Bible promises that every time, friends, you will experience a deep spiritual healing that comes from forgiveness, that comes from God's grace. And friends, James says that one of the primary contexts in your life where you're going to experience that type of spiritual healing in your life is going to be in the context of community, in confessing your sins to another person. And that's why James says in verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And friends, what James says here is there is a powerful and there is a very deep healing that comes from sharing and confessing your sins to another person and having them pray for you. You know, friends, for those of you who have been Christians for a long time, my guess is that many of us have experienced this before, haven't we? There's a season in your life where spiritually something is just eating away at you on the inside. Something is just eating you up. Whether it's a deep recurring sin or it's something that you're too afraid or you're too ashamed to admit to other people or talk to other people about. And friends, you may repent of it. You know, you may pray about it privately, confess it privately. But friends, the longer that you keep that thing hidden from other people, the longer you keep it to yourself and keep it inside, friends, the heavier and the heavier that burden gets upon your life and upon your heart. But friends, eventually by God's grace, you're placed in a situation, you're placed in a relationship where you are able to confess and share that sin to another person, to talk about it without the worry of them criticizing you or judging you or rejecting you. And friends, the moment that you unload that sin to that other person, it almost instantaneously feels that this, this heavy weight has been just lifted off of your shoulders. And you feel so freed and alive. Friends, what James says in this patch is that there is a deep healing that takes place when you not only confess your sin, but friends, when you confess your sins to someone else, to a brother or sister. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German pastor, in his book, Life Together, there's a section in his book where he talks about the importance of mutual confession to a fellow believer that really captures what James is saying here so well. And it's a lengthier quote, but let me read this for us. He says this, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. Since sin must come to the light sometime, it's better that it happens today between me and my brother rather than on the last day in the piercing light of the final judgment. Now, friends, the question here this morning that James wants us to ask ourselves here today is, friends, do you have people in your life that you can confess your sins to? And friends, what I mean by that is, do you have people in your life that you can really confess your actual sins to? I'm not talking about, you know, yesterday I just forgot to read my Bible, I forgot to pray, or I, I cut someone off on the road and I'm so, I need to repent of this. But friends, do you have people in your life who you can regularly share your actual sins with? Do you have people in your life who you can constantly and regularly bring your sins into the light together with? And friends, on the flip side, 
Are you someone who others would feel comfortable sharing their sins to, confessing their sins to? Are you someone who would be able to encourage another person as they come to you and share their deep idol or sin issue or heart issue that they've been struggling with? Are you someone that would be able to encourage that person without excusing or belittling their sin, but at the same time without judging or criticizing them or rejecting them? Friends, according to James, repentance and confession, it is not just something that concerns me and God. Friends, repentance and confession is something that concerns the entire church. All of us are involved. All of us have a responsibility to one another, to confess to one another, but also to be people who others can confess their sins to. And that's the third thing that James teaches us this morning about prayer, to pray with confession, not only to God, but to one another as the body of Christ. And this leads us to our last point. The fourth and final thing that James teaches us here today is to pray with Christ. Now let me explain what that means. Friends, in this last section of this passage, what James does is he uses an example from the Old Testament to describe to us how prayer works, where the power of prayer comes from, how prayer works. What James does in verses 16 through 18 is he explains that. And this is what he writes in verses 16 through 18. James says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, friends, what James does in these verses is he answers a question, why does God listen to people's prayers? Why do prayers work? Why do any of us, why do any of our prayers have any power in life? And friends, the way that James answers that question for us is very clearly in verse 16. James tells us that God answers and hears the prayers of people who are righteous. God answers and hears the prayers of righteous people. Now, friends, what does he mean by that? Let me explain. See, friends, according to the Bible, there are two types of righteousness, actually, that Scripture talks about. See, on the one hand, there's a thing called positional righteousness. Now, this righteousness is objective. It's the righteousness that God declares over you when you put your faith in Jesus. But then the Bible also talks about a different type of righteousness, and that's called practical righteousness. Now, practical righteousness is subjective, and it's the righteousness that you and I, we display, that we live out in our lives every single day as believers, through our deeds, through our speech, through our conduct, the way that we live our lives. And friends, according to James here, the reason that God answers your prayers as a Christian, it's never going to be because of your practical righteousness. It's never going to be because of how much righteousness you have displayed in your life or are displaying in your life. Friends, it's not because of how much you've been reading your Bible or how much you've been serving in church or pouring into other people. It's not even because of how much you may have been praying in your life how frequently and how often and passionately you pray. But friends, what James clearly tells us here in this passage is that, friends, the reason that God even listens to your prayers is, friends, because of the positional righteousness that you have received as a free gift of grace through Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, and by putting your faith in him. That is the only reason, friends, today why God even hears our prayers. It's because of the righteousness that God has given you positionally in Jesus. And friends, that's exactly why, if you notice, that's exactly why James uses Elijah of all people in the Old Testament, why he uses Elijah as an example in the Old Testament of prayer here. 
You know, Elijah, as many of you may know, growing up in the church, Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, wasn't he? He did so many miracles. He cast down the altars of Baal and rained fire down from the sky. He was one of God's most powerful instruments and prophets and, and men in the Old Testament. And yet, friends, if you notice again in verse 17, the way that James introduces Elijah is not by saying, now consider Elijah. Elijah was the most powerful prayer warrior and prophet in all of the Bible of the Old Testament. But what does James say in verse 17? He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Why does he say that? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Well, friends, in other words, what James is saying is that Elijah was a man as powerful as he was as a prophet, as gifted as he was as a prophet. He was a man with a sinful nature like ours, in need of grace, in need of the positional righteousness that he can only receive in and through Jesus by faith. And friends, it's through that righteousness, James says, that God answered Elijah's prayers for the rain to stop for three and a half years. And it's through that righteousness that again, Elijah would pray and the rain started to fall again and the earth bore its fruit. And friends, James's point here is this. Friends, if you're a believer here today, if you're a believer in Jesus, friends, you have access to that same kind of powerful and effective prayer that Elijah demonstrated in his life. That is the same kind of prayer that you have access to here today. Because friends, according to James, the prayer of a righteous person, someone who has been made righteous, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Now friends, if that's the case, and if that's true, then friends, what if, hypothetically speaking, what if someone were to come along and pray who had both types of righteousness? Someone were to come along and pray who not only had positional righteousness before the Father, but someone who in his life also had perfect, practical righteousness. Friends, according to James and what he says here, that person's prayers would be perfect, and they would always work. Whatever that person asked for, God would have to always answer and respond to that person because they were perfectly positionally and practically righteous. And friends, what the Bible tells us is that there's only one person in the history of the universe who had both positional and practical righteousness, and friends, that is Jesus Christ who before the foundation of the world as the Son of God had a perfect relationship with his heavenly Father in the Trinity in all of eternity. But friends, as he became incarnate and stepped into this world to save you and me, he lived a sinless, perfect life of obedience and holiness and righteousness. And friends, because of that, according to James, Jesus is the only one whose prayers are perfect and will always be answered by God. God will always answer his prayers. And we see that all throughout the New Testament and Scripture. Every prayer that Jesus prayed always came true. And friends, the reason that that is such an encouragement for you and I here today is because, friends, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that what Jesus is doing right now at the right hand of the Father is he's interceding for you and me. Right now, Jesus is in heaven praying for us. Right now if you're a believer in Christ. See, friends, some of the most comforting moments I've ever experienced in my life as a Christian have been those moments when people, I've either heard them or I knew that they were praying for me, when I knew that people were praying for me and what I was going through, especially in those moments when I was going through hardship or suffering or difficulty. And friends, if the imperfect prayers of fellow sinners can be an encouragement to us, then friends, how much more of an encouragement should it be knowing that Christ, our perfect Savior, what he's doing right now is he's praying for us. So friends, as we come to a close, 
Again, the final thing, the fourth thing that James teaches us about prayer here this morning is that, friends, when you pray, remember that Christ is praying with you, and he's praying for you every time you pray. Jesus Christ, whose prayers always work with perfect power, is praying for you. And friends, what James says, what he does is he invites us to join with Jesus in prayer, in praying for ourselves, knowing that everything that Jesus prays and asks for us is always answered, and it is always secured in him. Friends, that when Jesus prays that you and I would take to heart and begin to live out everything that James has taught us in this letter these past three months in the summer, to have joy in our trials, to fight temptation, to be impartial and unbiased in our lives, to bear fruit, to tame our tongues, to live from wisdom from above and not from wisdom from below, to live in light of eternity and, friends, to live a life of prayer. Friends, every one of those prayers that Jesus prays for you and with you, it is certain and it is sure. Because, friends, as James says, the prayer of the righteous person, the prayer of the righteous one, has great power as it is working. And friends, it is working right here and right now as Jesus prays for us as his sheep. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for the gift and the grace of prayer. Lord, thank you that you invite us through your word in every and all circumstances, God, to turn to you in prayer with not only our joys, but Lord, also our sorrows and our suffering, and our pain, our affliction. Lord, thank you that you invite us to also, Lord, to pray with one another as the church. Lord, that there is a deep healing that takes place when we lift up not only our physical illnesses and our weaknesses to you, Lord, but also, Lord, our sins. And we're able to find deep compassion and mercy as we confess our sins to you and also to one another. And Father, most of all, we're thankful, God, that you hear our prayers at all. Lord, because of the righteousness that you have given us as a free gift in Christ. Lord, thank you that he is our Savior, as our great high priest, knows all that we need, and even more than that, God, he prays for those things. That he prays for righteousness and obedience and fruit to be born in our lives. Lord, that he prays us to be more conformed to his image each day that we live. And so, God, thank you again, Lord, that even when we fail to pray, Lord, we have a Savior that is always interceding and praying for us. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your goodness. We pray all this in Jesus' name.